Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. In this week's episode, I'll be speaking to comedian Jason John Whitehead. Born in Coal Harbour, Nova Scotia, he studied at Dalhousie University in Halifax before moving to the United Kingdom, where he swiftly became one of the top comedians, performing award-winning, critically acclaimed shows annually at the Edinburgh Festival, appearing on numerous television shows and playing all of the best clubs. His new album, Live Before Lockdown, was released last month and immediately hit the number one spot on iTunes. Since 2016, Jason has been living in Los Angeles, where he was one of the head writers on The Jim Jeffries Show. I last saw him perform live in 2018 with Jim Jeffries at the Imperial Theatre in St. John, New Brunswick, and it was one of the funniest, rowdiest, most memorable shows I've ever seen, and you'll be hearing all about that shortly. I was fascinated to learn from him what it was like working with Jim Jeffries on one of America's biggest shows on Comedy Central, the differences between British, American and Canadian audiences, and meeting Maritimers in Hollywood. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hello, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to see you. It is, it is great to see you too. Uh, we have crossed paths and and countries over the years you yes uh you, it's the canadian it's the canadian maritime one in one out rule right <laughs> so now that i've i've traveled around i came to your country now you have to live in mine so i hope you're enjoying new brunswick <laughs> very much so uh uh you uh, what year did you leave canada and move to england in 98 i left 98 right yeah 98 i left and, and- I graduated from Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia and uh, went off to to do the I got to go find myself thing, you know, which a lot of Canadians do. So, yeah. Yeah. Man. And you had obviously you'd obviously before you're performing stand up in Canada, obviously, before you moved to England. I wasn't. I, I wasn't. I, I merely I went to Dalhousie. Right. So I said I studied the health professions and I actually worked in South Carolina for a while. I was an activities coordinator. Used my health degree to be an activities coordinator at Marriott Hotels. So I was in uh, Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. I was doing like dolphin trips for them and golf tournaments. Basically, you know, you organize the activities for people who come to stay on Hilton Head Island. Uh, and, uh, and I just got kind of bored, uh, maybe of the rules. You know, you had to be clean cut. You had to wear it. I was the only guy on a dolphin tour in a boat, you know, feeding fish to dolphins and talking to tourists who had to have a tie on. And I remember, you know, and I had to be clean shaven because I was Marriott. And meanwhile, all the other reckless dolphin tours are out there, you know, and they look shaggy. They look basically like the way I look now or the way I have looked for most of my career, which I longed. I longed to feel that freedom. So I, I came back to Nova Scotia briefly and told my parents I had to just get out and go see the Commonwealth, I guess, because uh, we get a free pass. When you're, when you're Canadian, you get two years uh, to go to, you know, they give you a, a stamp in your passport and you can go work 
and live in any Commonwealth country. So Australia, New Zealand, and I chose, I, I moved to Scotland in, uh, in 98. Amazing. And yeah. did you have thoughts when you got to, was it, was it Edinburgh specifically that you were in and living in? It was, Edinburgh was the first place I, I moved to. So yeah, specifically. And I, I always wanted to be a comedian, basically. But I was naive. I was a naive Canadian, I guess. I only, the only route to being a comedian that I saw was to go to Toronto. Um, so in all honesty, I, I was uh, intending to go to Toronto to do my master's. I was going to do journalism uh, for my master's. And it was kind of an excuse to, I was going to try to become a comedian at night. You know, that was my game plan. Because it's not a career that you... Well, I mean, some comedians do, but I guess I don't, and several other comedians. It's hard to admit it out loud to people, before, <laughs> yeah. as, especially before you've even done it or anything. It's not like I, until I started becoming a comedian. I think there was less than five people in my life who I had told, you know, in privacy right. or in moments of vulnerability. You know, just leaning over. And I remember I worked at a hockey rink briefly. Uh, I think when I was close to ending my degree, and I had a buddy who I worked with at the hockey rink, and I remember leaning over to him at one point and going, "You know what?" I'm going to become a comedian, you know, and sharing that. But it's not something I would share with closer friends and uh, or even my parents and family. So especially 20 years ago, 20 years yeah. ago. I mean, there was I mean, I mean, again, I mean, now hardly anyone's making any money from it. But but then <laughs> uh, it was definitely not thought of as in any way. Uh, yeah, a sensible there was no comedy club in Halifax either, you know. And so, yes, yeah, so to me, it was a thing that happened that the only chance was Toronto. You know, if I if you don't have a way to get to America um, and uh, and in Scotland, when I moved to Scotland, I got to admit, I didn't I didn't know that I was going to walk into a comedy culture, um, which is stupid and naive, you know, have, but having not grown up in Britain, it didn't even dawn on me. Of course, of course, the Eddie Izzards and the Billy Connollys have given birth to a whole, you know, community and a whole like a whole genre of comedy. So stumbling into that when I first came to Edinburgh was staying in a hostel, and on the second night, a bunch of us from the hostel, we all went, let's go check out comedy, and we went to a comedy club, and uh, that was it. That was it for me. I changed my mind, about because I was intending to do the whole European trip, right? I was going to, two months in Scotland, two months in Amsterdam, two months, you know, in Portugal, and just, like, backpack around, spend my time learning uh, and finding myself, and... Uh, <laughs> And then return to Canada and get back, get back on track and maybe move to Toronto. But uh, but it turns out I went to that comedy club my second night backpacking, and it was only like two months later. I think I called my friends and my family uh, to say, "Hey, I'm not going to do this bounce around Europe thing. I think I'm going to just spend the whole two years here in Edinburgh <laughs> and become a stand-up comedian, and maybe occasionally pop over to to parts of Europe for a for a weekend break or something." But other than that, I'm good to go. So that's how that came together. Amazing. And then, of course, so that was so 98. And then it was 2000, obviously, that you won the uh, you won the BBC Best New Comedian. So obviously yeah. that so must that have really, been. That really iced me staying. Really? Yeah. Because that was yeah. so because that was a moment because I lost the I lost in 99. Um, I was brand new. I was brand speaking new. So I probably started comedy in 99, I would say. I started. Uh, so even though I moved there in 98, I got a job at this place, the Balmoral Hotel, which is on Princess Street Gardens. Uh, there's a restaurant there called Hadrian's Restaurant, which you also had to be clean cut for. That was also a five-star restaurant. But that really pays the bills. If you're a foreigner, when you're a foreigner and you move to Britain, especially if you're a Canadian or an Australian, 
getting a bar job or getting a restaurant job is is I'm not going to say easy, but I'm going to say it's our bread and butter because <laughs> Canadians and Aussies and Kiwis and stuff, we kind of show up with an optimism and a joy for, oh, so this is history. This is, oh, this is fun. And they tend to put us behind bars or, you know, serving in restaurants because I think British people, they have they a little more of a hang up about the service industry, don't you? You get a little bit of a <laughs> class system rebellion in you. Like, I ain't, I, what, I work in a five-star restaurant and bring rich people their food? I ain't doing that. So, so that's... So that was my initial... It's just a miserable outlook. It's a miserable British outlook where we're just miserable about doing everything. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you want me to pour you a pint, do you? Yeah, yeah, I do, man. It's it's your job. You're behind the bar. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, now I got to pour... Yeah, it's in your job description. So that's so that's really how that started. So that got me there and had, had me the job. And then, uh, yeah, and then just getting stuck in, going to that club all the time. Because um, the Stan Comedy Club is great. They really nurture new talent, a lot of new material nights. And stuff like that. So, so yeah. So that was it. That, that that iced it for me. Amazing. And then so you were there. You were obviously in England for, till um, till 2014. Um, uh, so during that time in England, you obviously toured and performed in other parts of the world. What were the kind of big differences that you felt between like the British comedy club scene and the scene in Canada and, of course, now America as well? Well, I mean, the big difference, because of course, I, because I was new, I, most of my comment, stand-up comedy culture is British because I was so spanking new. And this is my, this is how I learn um, comedy. And, uh, and like I said, there's no breaks in British, or so there's no breaks in um, North American comedy. And that's one of the biggest striking differences, other than the styles of comedians, you know, they're more anecdotal in Britain. They play, they do more a longer, longer style of comedy. But overall, I think the culture in the audiences is different because a British comedy audience, uh, they treat it like theater, really. They have two breaks, you know, to go to the bar and get their drinks and also to discuss the comedy that they've seen. And I think that breeds a very different comedy culture at the clubs because then you come to North America. I think I did my first North American gigs maybe two and a half, three years into my career coming over. And that's when I first saw the attitude of like, no, we do a 90-minute show. We go straight through. Um, like a movie. And I think therein lies the difference. I think North American audiences are groomed to feel a stand-up comedy club experience is like a movie, and British audiences are groomed to feel a uh, stand-up comedy night is like theater, and you get shit-faced in the breaks. Yeah, yeah. That's it, that's it. Because that's, that's the real reason that there's all those intermissions. It's because... In a Canadian, it's funny in Canadian and, and American clubs, this kind of two drink minimum thing. Whereas in England, they have a, a twenty drink maximum. Yeah, it's, it's, exactly. It's, it's, it's yeah. such a kind of different thing where you know here you could not expect a British audience to go more than thirty minutes without getting around a drinks in. Yeah, yeah. It's always yeah. After a twenty minute mark, you can see the look on their faces of like, all right, mate, you're fine, but we still like beer more than you. <laughs> Yeah. And then, and can you imagine if British clubs attempted table service? I know it would be ridiculous. And I see, and I'm wondering if if they ever did, if there ever was a point where they thought maybe this works, and then they went back to you know what, just let them go get their own drinks at the bar. I mean, I because I think it, I think it works great. You know, and the atmosphere. I got to say, the atmosphere in a club when you just have one long bar at the back, and you just tell audiences get your beers. You know. The, the, this next section is going to be 25, 30 minutes, um, and then the bars will be open. But having that bar shut during a show brings the focus to the stage, and it's, you know, that for me is a, such a great British thing. 
Whereas there's there's sayings in North American comedy like the like the check drop, and things like that, which yeah. defines what they do because they have waitresses walking through the crowd like, uh, you know, not to sound uh, too snobby about, but they're drawing the attention of the audience as a waitress swans through and. And, you know, and it's, you know, sometimes it's a little loud. They're like, what do you want to drink? Right. When you're trying to <laughs> hit a punchline, it's a little bit, it's, a, it's, it's more difficult to tackle. And the check drop, of course, which means it's like usually when the headlining comic is trying to p- power home the show, he's in the last 10 minutes and, you know, waitresses just want to drop those checks so that it's the attitude of the, we got to get everybody to pay up because when the comic does his last joke and is off stage, it's done. You're getting out. You're out, you're gone. Whereas Britain doesn't do that. In Britain, they kind of go, all right, you had a great night. When the comic wraps up, you know, it's almost like, but we've locked the doors until you pay your bill. So go back to the bar, <laughs> go, to the, go to the back bar, get one last drink for yourself. You know, we'll still hang out for a bit. So, uh, you know, give us some more money for a little while and then and pay your bills yourself or, uh, or we're not going to let you leave. You know, very, yeah. very, very different attitude. It's, it's so true. I mean, uh, and also, I mean, would you say, and one of the things that people often talk about is that you know, British audiences are known for being uh, less forgiving, should we say. Like, did you find that it was the kind of, a lot of people say that it's the, the best place to kind of learn the craft because you don't have much grace at the start of your set. You've got to get them very quickly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. British, British audiences have, have their backs up right away. And especially some of the notorious British clubs, you know, like Up the Creek. Because Up the Creek, which of course notoriously, so Malcolm Hardy famously hosted Up the Creek all those years. Um, it's in South, it's in Greenwich, which is like South London. Um, and he, yeah, they, he, I think it was Sunday night shows, right? And where they'd have new acts and stuff. And he would literally introduce the acts to a rowdy audience too, the South London ravenous audience and he would introduce them by going here's the next act could be good could be shit let's see and he would say he would nurture the heckling and so if you didn't have your backup or something quick to say off the top yeah you were toast you know and then you contrast that with the style over here which is they just want to give all these credits they want to go okay before i come up to the audience can you tell them that i've been on was on letterman once um, I just, you know, I, I just did Fallon and I'm in a subway commercial or whatever, whatever they need. And uh, then that doesn't work with a British audience that, no. that they'll be heckling right away. Yeah. Well, it's funny because in England, like whenever, if you're emceeing, the first thing that the, the, the headliner will say is don't say, don't say they're going to love me. Don't give them any credits. Just bring me up. Because as soon as you say they've done this great thing, the British audience is going wanker. Entirely. There was one time at the, uh, at the comedy, we were in the comedy store. Oh, I actually do remember who the American comic is, but I'll save his name for the sake of the story. But we were at the comedy store, and it was all British-based act. But this guy was in town doing a guest spot. Um, he's a less, he's not a very famous, he's not famous uh, American comedian. But uh, I think Paul Thorne was hosting. I remember Paul went around to each of us and said, "What do you want to come on to?" And we all listed music. You know, I was like, "Oh, can you can you bring me on to my Michelle, uh, Guns N' Roses, you know, or Ben Norris is there saying, you know, can, can you bring me on to some mod track, you know, by the mod father and whatever. We all listed that. And then, and then Thorne looked at the American cover. What do you want to come on to? And he literally said, he said just that. Can you tell them that I, I wrote for Leno once upon a time and I've got this podcast out and, uh, you know, and last year I guested on a talk show hosted by uh, Keanu Reeves. Or whatever. And like Thorne, he was just looking at him and going, nah, mate, you'll get a song. That's it. <laughs> That's what we come on to here. 
And it didn't, it didn't work. He actually went out and tried to introduce himself that way. So to the British oh. audience, because, and he was kind of bitter about it. He was kind of like, that guy, I told that guy to tell you what I, what I was. And there, you could just see the, and then he tried to list them himself. You could just see the British audience go, oh, mate, we've made up our minds about you. Yeah, You're toast. We already and, hate you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he just struggled. So that's an important lesson to learn that bra- bragging doesn't get you anywhere in British in British comedy. No, they just want you to do the job, and and you've got to win them over quickly, and that's the that's yeah. the key. And I mean, I think well, well that's it too. They love you if you're sh- they love you if you're a little uh, like think of yourself as a little bit shit. That's the British audience, isn't it? Uh, or even the British attitude. Like if you can come up and say that you're as shit as they feel, you're gonna give them a great Friday night. Because they just start laughing right away, going, "Ah, we're shit too." It's that attitude. Whereas, whereas I got to admit, sometimes it goes over an American audience's head. So, sometimes, because sometimes if you're hard on yourself, and you, or sometimes that's the way they see it. If you're just being self-deprecating, sometimes to open it up, um, sometimes an American audience will look at you, go, "Oh, oh, this guy's, oh, this guy's really hard on himself," <laughs> and it's hard to backpedal. It's hard to go, "No, no, no, I'm being." being facetious we're doing a comedy thing here and uh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm just pretending i know i'm amazing really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, yeah let me just dig this hole even deeper <laughs> yeah. and, and then do you find do you find a big uh, gulf of difference between the canadian audiences and american audiences when you because i know you obviously perform primarily in america but when you come back to canada and, and do shows and is there also differences across canada well i think so there's because there's differences every in every night in every venue right like you can't there's nobody who goes i'm going to british columbia and all the clubs are the same because if you go to tour british columbia you're gonna see yeah you'll have a different scenario from nights you know it's all governed by the attitude of the of the people in there you know regular comedy clubs who have more experienced comedy goers and stuff like that so there's not a huge difference but i mean i think i can get a bigger difference out of a canadian audience because i unload on a canadian audience when i'm up there being canadian so in a way in a way, I think there's a little extra joy that comes out of me of like, you know, it's great to be home and what's going on. And, you know, I, I and I know a lot about every Canadian city, of course, because I've moved a lot when I was a kid because my father's military. So. So, yeah. So to that point, I think there's something different in the attitude and stuff. And especially if you go to Canadian cities that don't get to see much stand up comedy, they're just ha- they're happy right away. So they're they're ready for a great night out. You know, and uh, and I don't know the way I get to know American audiences is usually to willfully to purposely put myself on a back foot when I get up there. I usually make fun of them at the start and get them a little bit angry. Get them like just make fun of, you know, their whatever their their football team, their basketball team, something. And I get myself on a little back foot, you know, and, and usually try to get myself out of it, you know, within that first minute, which is often quite fun. You know, I think I stood on I think it was in Atlanta. And Atlanta was a rowdy audience, but I just started making fun of their hockey team, the Thrashers, and just sticking the, the knife in, just going, you guys can't even support a sport. They moved to Winnipeg, and they're having a better time. They, they, this is a group of people who lived in Atlanta, and after a couple of years here, because probably because you named them the Thrashers, you know, they decided, oh, this is a, we're the smallest bird here. We got the Atlanta Hawks, the Atlanta Falcons, and then... Just, you know, just getting them angry. And then slowly they, they, they ended up having fun with it, you know, after a while. They kind of warm up to you after you recover.
you know yeah but but that but that's the that's the skill of what you do and that, that, that's one of those things that comes with with you know decades in the business not um you know it's not something that anyone can just walk up and do that's something that you've done obviously by by touring and um yeah and by, by, working by risking it a few times and failing <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah Which, that's the way we learn that, all of those things like oh yeah oh the, the job, times yeah. it's gone wrong <laughs> and have you been in la now for since uh, 2014 is that right um I, I I like to say that I have officially been here since 2016 because I actually still had my place in Britain, I think, till, until 2015. I was kind of going back and forth. So my first trips over were in 2014. Um, I was coming because so, I had a couple buddies are here, like Reese Darby, who was working with Flight, Flight of the Concords, and Jim Jeffries was over uh, touring like crazy. Oh, he had a sitcom at the time as well. So I was kind of coming over and staying with them coming back and forth and weighing up my options and slowly deconstructing my life uh, back in Britain. 15 years is a lot of, it was a big decision, really, even though, you know, I might have a North American accent and everything. It was a big decision to, to move from Britain. So I did it kind of gradually. And, uh, and now here I am and it feels like 100%. Right. And it's home. Yeah, it's funny. My, my wife uh, was in, in London for the exact same amount of time. She left New Brunswick in, 20, in 1999 and left in 2014 to come home, so to speak. But of course, as you say, like that's such a huge part of your life. It's all your kind of adult life. It's, it's, um, yeah, well, I knew, I knew more about Britain than I did about any other country. I mean, I knew, I know a lot about Canada just being Canadian and of course, just catching up on your Canadiana whenever you can. But the reality of just living in Britain and, and getting to know the road in Britain, like every weekend I'm in a different British city. If I'm not working like somewhere else in Europe or something, but you just you get to know all of Britain, which really arms you for when you're talking to British people, you know, who challenge you, like who think that you know nothing. And then here you're just you're just talking about restaurants or, you know, landmarks in certain towns or, you know, a suspension bridge in Bristol or, you know, you're able to list all these things. And British people are like, holy shit, you know, my country. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've, I lived there for 15 years. Solid. Yeah. And you know more of it than most British people because, as you say, you've been in every single town, city, and and it, you know, it blows your mind. When, it blows your mind when you meet a British person who, ha or like, say, an English person who hasn't been to Scotland. You know, when, when you run into those, which I mean, which happens in Canada because I'm sure you're running into Maritimers who have never been past Ontario. You you might even be running into Maritimers who haven't, you know, who because when they go on holiday, maybe they go to Boston. Or they go to Barbados or uh, or the Dominican Republic or something, and you know, because it's a big country. So there's so, but being in Britain, being such a small country, I never thought I'd hear that out of British people. But yeah, I've talked to a lot of English people who are like, "Oh, what's Scotland like?" You know, way up there. <laughs> and I'm like, "What? You mean like you mean like four hours? Four hours drive? I mean, at, at most eight hours if you're all the way down south." But. It's like it's like driving. It's like being from Halifax and driving up to Cape Breton, you know. But yeah, uh, yeah. But I've had people. So, in, I've had people in Saint John say to me, "What's Halifax like?" I mean, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, people have been here their whole lives. It's like really, you never taken the three and a half hour drive to check out Halifax. Yeah, <laughs> for a short break. You, like, no, man. If we're saving our money for a trip, we're going to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do. do. Do you ever meet Maritimers in Los Angeles at all? Yeah, there's a couple of us. Actually, actually, it's quite hilarious. Okay, I'll tell you. Well, there's so Tracy McDonald is here. So she, uh, she's a fantastic stand-up comedian. She like won Star Search, 
she won Star Search like the same year that I won the BBC, I believe, in Britain. So the two of us, both Maritimers, we both won the two biggest uh, competitions in each in each comedy market, and so that so that was it. So that was an interest. I mean, not a lot of people realize that Tracy and I are very aware um, because, of course, my winning the BBC catapulted my career in Britain, but her winning Star Search catapulted her career in America, and and then we would see each other back. In Halifax, like if we came to play, like when those when the local comedy clubs started sprouting up and stand-up comedy became more viable night out, um, and that's how we got to know each other. And then we used to always laugh. Like we were like, "Wow, we 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 two Maritimers took the biggest two pops in the in the international industry in the same year." Uh, but what I was going to tell you was that there's one very cool thing about uh, meeting a Maritimer in LA because just because there's not many, but there are, there are, there are some of us who get out, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I actually, so I subletted, um, I subletted a place here in LA when I was, when I was first moving, uh, when I first moving over for one of those periods where I thought I'd come over for a month and a half, uh, get the lay of land. And I was subletting a place just down off of Hollywood Boulevard and I was subletting it from a singer who I had met, an American singer. She was on tour in Japan. And so I had told her that I was going to go to L.A. for a bit. And she offered me her place. She said, you can sublet my place. She didn't tell me that it came with a roommate, uh, which, which is fine. But I did show up at her place. And then this guy was there. And he was like, who are, what are you doing? Like, I think he thought I was breaking in because I don't think she told him. She didn't him. even tell him. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she really broke it down. Nope, so he had to figure it out. And then we had this moment in the, in the hallway after we'd been living together for like a day. Um, and he said to me, he goes, he goes, so where are you from? And I was like, oh, I'm from Canada. And he goes, oh, me too. And I was like, oh, cool. Whereabouts? And then he goes, oh, from uh, Nova Scotia. And I was like, no way, me too. And then he said, where are you from? And I said, well, Halifax. He goes, holy shit. And so we actually completely bonded. So here we were, we're just thrown together as roommates in, the, uh, in Los Angeles. And, it, and we're still good friends now. So he's a music producer. Um, from from Nova Scotia, uh, so his name's Darren. He's Darren Baby D Baby D Beats uh, Smith. I think he does a lot of K-pop and stuff. Um, great guy, but that was our first meeting, and we of course we had that moment of just looking at each other, going, "Are you are you lying to me?" and uh, and trying to figure <laughs> it out. And then it turns out we were both telling the truth, and we couldn't believe it. And and whether or not you'll believe it, that has happened uh, twice to me. Um, the second time was more realistic. Yeah, the second time was more realistic because uh, we were playing the Ace Theater in here in Los Angeles, gorgeous old old theater in central Los Angeles, and the kids in the hall had been playing as well. The kids in the hall were on, I think, the two nights before us. So we had these kids in the hall, so we had this big influx of, of Canadiana, as I like yeah. to say, of all these people like uh, catching up on kids in the hall. And then on our opening night... Uh, we were on like the rooftop having a having like a closing party or something like s celebrating the night, and the and some of the kids in the hall people were there, and I ended up talking to this guy, and it turns out we went to the same high school in British Columbia. So I went to high school in BC for three years because I'm a military kid, and uh, we were yes yeah, so we had the same teachers and everything. So we had he's actually uh, the producer on my album that I just released. Because uh, he's he works as a producer for Kids in the Hall and stuff, but because of the quarantine, he was able to work with me uh, and get this album out. But we had that we had that moment like four years ago because 
we doubted each other. You know, he's like, well, what, really? You lived in Vancouver Island? I was like, yeah, what, on high school. I went to Reynolds High School. He's like, no way, me too. And that just happened. We've been, we've been best friends ever since. So, I mean, it's pretty it's great. Amazing. It's pretty great when you do, when you do run into a Maritimer. It's like, you know, it's, it's an even better version than when you run into a Canadian and you're backpacking around the world and you got that little Canadian patch or whatever, which always allows us <laughs> yeah. to go, oh, an ally, <laughs> an ally in, in logic and, 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 you know, de-escalation and kindness. Oh, we found him. So, I mean, that's always a great moment, but it's even better when you're on like a rooftop bar in Los Angeles trying to celebrate, you know, a great comedy night. And then there it is, a fellow Canadian. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. beautiful. I mean, and it's a uniquely Canadian thing. I mean, I feel that now. And now just being here six years, I find that when I go anywhere else and I bump into a Maritimer, it's an immediate hug. It's an immediate like feeling of connection because, I mean, there aren't many of us here. So it, so the odds exactly. are. but And invariably, whenever you meet a Maritimer anywhere else in the world, it is the only one of the only parts in the world where if they say, do you know Dave on whatever <laughs> avenue? Chances yeah. are you will, right? It's yeah. not a stupid question. It's Yeah, it is. It's very possible. Oh uh, yeah, that was definitely the case, especially in the date in the dating pool back in the like when I when I was going to Dalhousie, and and like living in Halifax. Yeah, I remember that very well. You're you're. It's less than six degrees of separation. So you, yeah, you never know. Somebody will know somebody when you're telling a story of a girl you met last night. I bet. Oh yeah. Oh what? Oh Diane. Oh I know Diane. I'm like oh my god. So that happens all the time. That's true. Yeah. Um, and um, and so your your album live before lockdown, which is an amazing name, even without lockdown. I was thinking about this. I was thinking because it sounds like a Metallica album. Anyway, oh, right. <laughs> even if even if there wasn't a lockdown, but of course, uh, you, so you obviously recorded it before lockdown. But then you it was edited um, and released during lockdown. What challenges did that present, or did it actually mean that you had kind of more time to focus on it? Yeah, it was, there was more, t well, because of these things, because, uh, uh, like I was saying, the guy who produced it for me was working with Kids in the Hall. They were supposed to be on tour right now as well. So in a way, that was lucky timing for me, uh, because I was able to, to capitalize Robin's time. Uh, because leading up to that, because I was supposed to be recording the album, like, last week. I, I was supposed to tour uh, Asia. I was going to be in Kuala Lumpur and Manila, um, do this Asian tour, and I... And I had been building all this material, and I thought, this is going to be great. I'll do three nights in Kuala Lumpur, and I'll record an album over the three nights, and it'll be cool. Now, that all went out the window uh, with, you know, the situations of this year. And so what I did have was I had about 100 hours of recording uh, from when I was trying to practice the material and learn all the material and, like, get things right for the last year and a half of touring because I've been recording everything, and there's some great recordings so in a way, the quarantine gave us the time, but the style of album we did, we needed the time because I basically handed my producer 100 hours of stand-up and I gave him the instructions of like, I want the best sounding gigs, but you can choose the best gags. You can choose the most refined uh, jokes and routines. Some of those are great sound quality. And then off he went. So I'm sure it drove him nuts, but that would be, that would have been all of April for him, you know, just uh, going through shows because he was calling me going, and he's like, I'm going through the Atlanta shows now. I'm going through Tampa. Uh, tomorrow I'll get to Calgary and Edmonton and then I'll check them all out, you know, kind of thing. And so that took a whole month before he came back to me with like, these are the best bits. And then, uh, and then we carved them down. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's beautifully done, and I love the. I mean, it's it, it's funny because you've always prided yourself on being a comedian whose whose focus was always to make people laugh. That that that's the that's what you that's what you do as many laughs as possible. That's the goal. What I found yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, what I found amazing about this album is that. Oh, I guess what I mean is is you've never kind of you know tried to necessarily brand something with a theme. Whereas what I love about this is there is a lot of ground covered. There is a lot of uh, political statements in there. Uh, in a in a again in a in a funny way but I mean I love the stuff for example on uh, the point that you make is, you know, we're liberally minded people, but there are scary liberals out there that are now yeah. scaring us more than, yeah. <laughs> than right wing nutjobs. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, that's I really enjoyed doing that routine. And one great thing is there's a there's a development of that routine since that recording. So that that would be Boston. That was so there's a Boston segment, which I believe is maybe the third track to the sixth track on the album or something. It's like it's the album starts in Calgary. And then we moved to Boston. And Boston, of course, being America, is the only way, only uh, venue where I did more American politics-y kind of stuff. Every other stop, uh, Rotterdam and uh, Rotterdam and like Sweden and and uh, like Sydney, it's all more social, uh, social comedy, social commentary, something that's more universal. But yeah, I, I let loose on Boston a bit because I knew this is this is a place to unload uh, more a political opinion. And so, and I love that routine because that routine actually grew since Boston, and it's not on the album the way it's grown. So, in a way, it's given me uh, it's given me a launching pad, I think, for when we're when we get out of quarantine. I think I've got my first like, my new direction going for you know for the for the next set. So, so yeah, so it's fun. I and I loved the segue in between uh, the change in, in cities because it's interesting because you're listening to it and you don't need to know what city you're in. In some cases, it becomes apparent. In some, you know, it becomes apparent when you are in Australia. But I love the uh, I love the the plain sound between. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, we played with some ideas. Yeah, because as you would might guess, it started with with an idea of like maybe I should introduce each city and go like here, you know. And then we realized no, actually, it's more fun if it's. Because you can tell, you know, like you're saying, like some cities, it's obvious. Like when I'm talking to a London audience and of course in Boston, I literally say I moved here to America. So you can tell. I mean, and oh, I think when I'm talking to Sweden, you can hear me say, you know, uh, Swedish people or European. Uh, that's right. I do a routine about European women in Sweden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. All true. So we played with that a lot. So we were toying with... Because I love some old albums. Like, I remember Bill Hicks had the Flying Saucer tour. And, yeah. uh, like, so sometimes you've heard these old comedy albums and they haven't been shy to, to go, here's an adventure here, here's a, here's a piece here. But Richard Pryor's were often cut up like that, weren't they? Right, like Pryor yeah. might have one set from, from one city. And again, you don't need to know. And it's like you were saying earlier about the fact that, you know, the universality of, of, of comedy and the fact that, uh, you know, one club, even though there are changes ultimately it's about the people in the room at, on that night and really it's universal you're not you're not doing it but it's it, there was something magical about kind of figuring it out while you were, while you were <laughs> listening and it's uh i thought it was oh it was thanks man yeah i mean i was really done. happy when we arrived at the plane decision just a simple just a simple plane noise to let you know that we are changing venues we are changing countries but you can try you go ahead and try to figure out exactly where yeah yeah man <laughs> yeah it was it was a funny one too because I that was one where so Robin my producer that was uh, when we finally came up with the planes I think he was exhausted already because like I said he's already gone through hundreds of hours of comedy 
Um, and then we've whittled it down. I think we had, we whittled it down to like 38 tracks or whatever in the end. And I think in the end on the album, there's, there's 19. And uh, so all the patience for that. And then, and then, so then when we came to the decision to do the airplane uh, bridges uh, between changing venues, he had already tried so much stuff. I know he was exhausted. And then he had to redo the airplanes. And then, and then just to be the asshole artist, I ended up coming back to him and going, hey, man, can you turn the airplanes down? They're, they were too loud. And I could just, I could feel his eyes roll, like, th through the phone. Like, oh, God, now you want the airplanes turned down? I was like, yeah, dude, I just find that they're, it's too jarring and loud. So, so we actually had to have that conversation at one point. Amazing. But this is the, this is the reality of the intricacies of recording a, a, an album and, of course, the intricacies of comedy itself. I mean, one of the things that I loved that, that was kept in there was, of course, the, um, you know, there was there's so much kind of very tightly honed material that, um, that you perfect. And then there's that magical moment when there's like a 12 year old in the in the in the club, um, which, again, just a brilliant producing decision and creative decision to, to keep that in, because. I mean, none, none of that. Some, some banter with um, audience members, we can all use lines that we might have used before. But with that, that's all pure and in the moment. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, we went back and forth about that one as well, but it's really fun to leave that in the album. And I think it helps that the whole name of the track literally is <laughs> Man Brings 12-Year-Old Son to Show. So that just lets people know, oh, this is not... This is going to be an improvised in the moment kind of routine. I think it helps to know what's going on because I was trying to because I know what's going on. But when I listen to a track, I'm like, is an audience going to understand that I'm just talking to somebody in the front row here? Or do, or do they or will they think that I'm on stage delivering this like a routine? And I think it's yeah, but I think it's clear. I think people no. get it. It definitely works beautifully. And then, and I know when, and of course, when it was released, I mean, when we were talking about the positives and the negatives of doing stuff in lockdown. Um, and of course, I mean, the one thing that people were desperate for when this kind of global pandemic hit was obviously reasons to laugh. And of course, I mean, the album uh, shot straight to the top of the iTunes charts in uh, America, Canada. Like, how did that feel? Yeah. Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, that's, that's what you want. I mean, it's hard... I mean, it's a difficult thing to pull off, but luckily, you, you know, you can you can get out there and do a pre-sale of your album now uh, and get some interest going and, and get, get eyes on it and stuff. And so that was, yeah, it's hugely beneficial, especially since I'm independently produced this time around. I mean, my last album, uh, which, which, uh, which I love, is with Stand Up Records in America. It was my first album on an American label, which was exciting. But I don't think, but it charted at about 16. We got it to 16. Um, and uh, I think I took the lessons I learned from that and from being with a, with a label on my last album, and I kind of took them and applied them to being independent this time. I mean, i got to be honest, if I'd have hustled as much on this, on this current, this independent album, if I'd have done that kind of hustle with addition to what the label was doing on the last album, it probably would have got to number one as well, but I didn't. But those are things that you learn in the end. You're like, you learn like, oh, yeah, even though I'm in bed with an entity here that's going to push me, it doesn't hurt to be out there pushing yourself as well and, you know, doing, doing your part to boost it even more. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's definitely something I've learned coming here where, you know, there isn't, there isn't obviously, you know, a, um, I mean, I mean, a, the, the, there's not really a star system in Canada, full stop, but in the Maritimes, there's not even really, there's not an, there's not an existing industry. So it is that thing where it's all about the, the personal hustle. But I mean, I, I know 
when I when I first uh, saw the album artwork, I wrote to you to say how much I loved the album cover, and you pointed out another um, uh, setback with doing an album in quarantine. Tell us about how the artwork uh, came yeah. about. I mean, that's quite that's another happy uh, coincidence that worked out really well. And I, this is actually uh, I actually got a guy to design the cover who's a, who's also a maritimer. So uh, and I, so I, I, cont- I contacted. Uh, my buddy Ted Lapierre, who actually did an album cover uh, poster for me probably about 10, 12 years ago. And uh, uh, so I contacted him in Nova Scotia. I was like, dude, I got to make a cover here, but I can't book a camera. I can't book a photographer or anything because we're not, this was like crisis time. We weren't allowed even out, you know? And I was like, I don't want to get a, you know, do a selfie in my room or anything like that. So I actually gave my buddy Ted in Nova Scotia access to my photos, you know, and had the whole thing of like, well, I just don't know. None of it feels like the theme of what we're what we're trying to achieve here. I didn't I don't want to I don't want to live before lockdown and then for me to be, you know, standing in a studio or something. Um, But uh, he he (laughs) went through my photos and he came back with my uh, passport picture. And I remember at first I was like, you want to use my passport picture? And he was like, well, it just seems to work for me. And then I started thinking about it. I was like, actually, it makes sense. We're doing, a, we're doing an album about flying to different venues and everything. Like my passport is like this photo that's on the cover of the album. Now it's kind of dressed up because it's got clouds around it and planes and stuff. But the reason why I look so grumpy or like, like look so stoically faced is because it's my actual passport picture. Um, you know, and and because a lot of people have asked, why are you why aren't you smiling? Right there? I'm like, I'm like, dude, it just it happened. We did an album yeah. called Live Before Lockdown about me flying to all these different venues, and there it is. It's my my. In the end, we used a passport picture because because you can't get a photographer in quarantine, and I think it's a happy circumstance. I think in the long run, nobody will even ask. So, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Perfect. Perfect for the theme. <laughs> Well, you're also lucky because, again, I, I just saw it and thought that's a great portrait, right? I wasn't even thinking that. And what's funny is, like, you must be the only person in world history to have a passport photo in which you don't look like a dick. That's a really impressive Well, I, well see, i got to be honest. i got to be honest with you, though, man. I think, the, I think the planes and I think the other graphics that he's added to it help. I think that helped because if you look, because if you saw that passport photo, like, in my passport... Like right there, you'd be just like everybody else. Be like, oh, yeah, you look like a dick. <laughs> yeah, you look like you're gonna true. rob somebody or something. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, purple clouds and stuff really, really helps. Really helps bring out. I mean, for any of you who have grumpy people in your lives, you know, just just you know, put them in front of a green screen, and uh, add add some clouds and maybe an angel halo, and you'll be good to go. Cheers everybody up. So true. Um, how many years now have you been working uh, with Jim? Like, I know you obviously worked together uh, in in England doing uh, clubs and then tours, but for the, in terms of the Jim Jeffries show, how long have you been uh, working on that together? Well, we did uh, three seasons. So we're in our, yeah, we, we did three seasons. Um, we're, yeah, we're, we're currently off the grid. You know, I hate to say, I'll never say we're cancelled. I'll just say that we're not renewed. We're currently not renewed. So until some miracle TV network comes up and goes, hey, we need uh, we need more of these. Um, I mean, it's a show that, I mean, it was really good. We really enjoyed it. But uh, three solid seasons. But yes, I mean, I go, I go way back working with with Jim. So of course, we did work together on the on the British circuit a lot. Um, you know, we even like we even were paired together like in the really early days of our careers. We were trying to become a double act. 
I want to say for Zoo Magazine, but it, do you remember Zoo Magazine and Nuts Magazine? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And they had like this competition to have uh, comedians do do like uh, have an online presence for them and do like a column every week. And Jim and I, we were in the, we were the finalists for that. The uh, the guys who won it went on to do a show called Little Chef Big Chef. Remember those boys? But we were in the final two, so it was me and Jim versus quite clean cut English guy. So it was a brash Aussie and a, and a Canadian. And I remember our final clip, we were actually standing on a London bus, like a real London, like an actual in-service London bus. It was driving through London, like Finsbury Park-ish. And uh, we were we stood up on the top of the bus and slapped each other with fish uh, <laughs> just to shock the, that was our final, I remember that. Like there we were, new comedians. We're like, we're like 24, 25 years old. We're, I think we were st- we were doing Homer Simpson, just yelling, shocking the shocking the bus, you know, the, the spontaneous odds, yelling na 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 na, fishing, and then hitting each other in the head with fish, and uh, and I, I, you know, who knows why Zoo didn't give us the job? You know, who 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 will ever know why they they went for the more predictable comedians. What, what did it feel like to go from? Because you know, you guys, you 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 did all the all the clubs across the UK together came up together what was it like when you kind of sat together in the the writer's room for the first time knowing that you were doing this kind of huge show that wasn't just going to be kind of you know viewed by you know millions in america but also globally like how did that feel to you both oh super exciting i know i know jim was over the moon um yeah i mean it's what yeah it's it's perfect isn't it like i was so excited it was the easiest i gotta admit like I said, I went to Dallas and everything. I was always in trouble for being late. I was late a lot in my youth, you know, late for things. Um, I, I had never learned maybe to just give people a little more respect and show up on time. Like, to me now, that's one of the most important things. But I think having a job that I loved, that I couldn't wait to be at, was, was a big thing, too. So when I first got the job, I think I lost about 10 pounds because I was stressed out. So I was having trouble sleeping. I was like, am I going to be able to crush this? Can I write Can I write some political jokes? Can I, can I do this? I'm mostly just a social comedy guy. Um, so it was stressful at first. But then, you know, two weeks into the job, you first get that first couple shows under your belt. And, man, I'm at work an hour early. I'm just, I was just loving it. You know, I, I was never late. And, uh, you know, it's what you want. It's what you build for, right? It's like... You're in there writing jokes that are going to go on TV to an to an international audience. So yeah, yeah, it's it's the dream. I mean, did you and did you find that process uh, made it more like? Did you become kind of more productive in your own writing because that's a huge discipline to kind of be be coming up with that kind of level of comedy every yeah. single week. Oh yeah, it definitely helps one hundred percent. There's a, there's stuff that gets put on the cutting room floor. That sometimes you're like, if you can, if you know that it's like that it's not so Jim Jeffries that this can definitely be used in another show. So I had files for that. So sometimes if something missed out on a show, but I knew it would be great in Jim's voice, then I would always file those away and then and then re you know put them in another script. But uh, but some other ideas um, I was able to run with. In fact, the Boston set that you mentioned on my album. Like a couple of those things, uh, I can't remember what, what the joke was that you mentioned off the top, but there's in that same routine from the Boston audience, I do something about scientists being liars. I have a, this routine I, of, a, and I love that the, the Stephen Hawking thing, and they're, yeah, they're, they're pranksters, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, this whole idea that Stephen Hawking is a prankster, and like, yeah, when it, when everybody 
you know, he gets everybody to look up at the galaxy and he didn't really have ALS. So when everybody turns around and looks up at the galaxy, he gets up from his wheelchair and runs around and then sits down before you're looking. Now, that was in our show. Uh, that was in our show, and that was a really like a visual gag. So I had written a bunch of these, and they were a visual gag so that Jim could deliver the line. But the funny thing would probably be the image over the like the over the shoulder shot uh, with it being like a mock news style show. So that over the shoulder shot showed up, and it was Stephen Hawking like sprinting out of his. So it was a still a still mock up from our graphics department. And I really felt, oh, I like that. What a great joke. It's a great joke. And there's the image of Hawking running. Uh, boom. And uh, I remember thinking that'll never, it would never work as stand up because it needs that image of Hawking standing there. And the week that we were airing, I think the morning of, there was another, there was a crisis. It might have been, I'm not sure, but it might have been the Las Vegas shooting or something. Something. Uh, like of world news happened and we ended up having to rejig the whole show uh, at the last minute and, and doing rewrites and so massive cuts to the piece that we were working on which was which I don't know it somehow got to scientists being liars so it was probably about some climate change denial it was probably a, a that's what it is in the album right it's about yeah the absurdity of uh, of climate change you know uh, climate change deniers and how they basically just hate facts and and think all scientists are lying <laughs> yeah so so you'd imagine how at first i was bummed that it got cut from the show but i think i went on stage like the next night and i and i i don't know i thought okay well it, I, can this work without and over without the photo without an over the shoulder a goofy graphic of Stephen Hawking, and then it did. And I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." And then, and then it grew from there for me. Like, and then it grew beyond. Then I ended up having some examples of that, and so then it became my stand-up. So that's one of those happy coincidences that that happens when you're when you're committed to writing a show. So sometimes the fodder becomes uh, useful. You know. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, and uh, I, I remember last the last time I saw you was uh, you were here in St. John. You and Jim Jeffries were playing the uh, the Imperial Theatre here in St. John. There was uh, there was two shows, and uh, I believe members of the audience were throwing up in in both shows. Uh, <laughs> it, people talk about it still here. It's like you know I was there that <laughs> night, right when the all, guy got, got thrown out and was. Yeah, and it was uh, it was an amazing night, and uh, and I saw uh, I saw both your sets. I, I didn't see uh, all of Jim's second one, but uh, and you both your sets were, were were different. And I again, I loved the story that you told about partying with Axl Rose ah, and yeah. uh, the Welcome to the Jungle line. It was just um, magical. Um, one of the things that I thought was uh, really beautifully done was how. At the, during your set, you found a kind of a, a you found a funny way of basically conveying to the audience. Uh, like, like you might think that Jim is your buddy, but it isn't fun for you to shout out. Like, like, don't think that you're in the show. Um, shut up. And of course, wow, inevitably, this must have been a hell of a. This is, you know, because gigs, of course, do start to blur into one. But this must, but the fact that you can remember this moment, I'm like, all oh, right, this sounds like we were dealing with some hardcore disruption. Yeah, well, well, and it, I think it was just like it was almost like you sensed it, so you preempted it like you could sense it coming and then and then you so you gave them their warning uh, and it was seamless and it was funny and he went straight back to material and then Jim came out and he started and I think he started the Cosby bit and um and someone said something and he just made, he made everyone in the room stand up 
and made them all. He said, everyone point at that person and everyone say one word and everyone said the C word. And again, which is not top of mind in Canada. Like in England, people just call each other that anyway. Yeah, but, it, I mean, it, here, it defines I mean, many things in England. It, yeah, it, can, it, it, yeah. it can be a compliment. <laughs> In England. <laughs> it's, definitely, it's definitely a friendly term. Um, if this wasn't a Canadian podcast, we would have said it, called each other it 50 times already. Um, and, uh, and, and, he, and what was fascinating was just seeing that kind of way of handling things. Like, did you guys find that on the road? Because you were kind of known as kind of rock and roll comedians and, uh, and people would see your work and know that you were the kind of fun guys. Did was there that kind of element of crowd control with some audiences did you find yeah i think you need yeah sometimes you need little tricks like like especially like in liverpool and stuff i think it's a lesson that you learn in stand-up um you know because every now and then you'll see a newer comic if their show gets disrupted or something they immediately turn on the person like how could you i was you're interrupting me you know i'm trying to do something here and that never helps it never puts anybody at ease and yet it it happens frequently because sometimes people are just so i don't know they're so stuck in their performance mode that uh that they feel a a derailment is a a, a complete offense to them how can you and so i think you do have to learn uh that that with certain eyes that kind of attitude doesn't help you know, you know, especially I think about Liverpool all the time because 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 in Liverpool, yeah, if you bark at a bunch of Geordies or something that that, you know, like, shut up, I'm trying to finish my joke here. That's not going to get anywhere. Whereas if you learn to instead go, oh, yeah, sure, let's just walk all over my jokes. You know, I came here to give you guys the jokes, but uh, what you guys want to chat about something else? You know, just if you change your attitude, um, it can help you get back on track easier kill them kill them with kindness i think is the is the way is the way to go you know especially with the rowdier audiences that is all that is such good advice that would work uh for any uh any job um i guess uh my final question uh, anyone can use that advice um so my final question is what what are you looking forward to most about uh after the after the lockdown, getting back on stage, what's the thing that you can't wait to do? Oh wow! Well, I got so I know this is only audio, but of course I can see you, buddy. But I've got I've written about ten pages of material, so I've gone, so I've written. So like I said, I've got the I've got I had the one joke, like I said, which expanded my whole like uh, the left and right political joke from Boston. So what made it onto the album? is of course gonna be gone but like i said it it evolved into there's a couple other metaphors and stuff so that was my new jumping off point for all my new material and then i uh so then i did a little face facetime live and stuff last night and uh and then i've just found all of a sudden i'm generating material now this is of course is cocky but for any comedian for any comedian who's in lockdown, which is all of us, I'm sure we were all writing material and we were like, oh, we've got like, I've got like an hour of material, but it always takes, <laughs> it always takes that first performance to realize your one hour of material is actually only three minutes, you know, but, uh, but I am very much looking forward to that. So I've got sheets of material, like I'm ready to go with new ideas and stuff like that. So I'm ready to, uh, to see the confusion, some the occasional confusion in an audience's eyes and then the occasional uh, joy. So that's uh, so that's one of the best bits. And I got to say, since we've been in lockdown so long, this is probably going to be the first time for a lot of comedians where they're hitting a stage going, going, you know, like before 2020, 
when I'd hit the stage, I had one or two new ideas that I was going to try to wedge into the middle of my set and hopefully they'll grow. And now I think comedians are going to be, they're going to be chomping at the bit when we get out of here and they're going to go, I got 20 new ideas. So I got 20, I'm going to go for it and let's, uh, let's see what sticks. So that should be a, should be a fun period. Oh, well, I can't wait to see what what's in store. I can't wait for your for your next album, uh, li- literally live after lockdown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, whole, um, everything's going to uh, change, and, isn't it? The whole, all of society's going to change. So, yeah, you know, every yeah. I think every stand-up comedian has probably evolved in their, or devolved in their house. Yes. And so it'll be, it'll be fun to find out which direction we've all gone in. JJ, I cannot thank you enough for your time. And thank you for your services to comedy and services to the Maritimes globally, my friend. Yeah, well, and thank you for entertaining the Maritimers, man. Thank you for coming and making a home of my, my beautiful part of the world. So we're very proud to have you, man. And, you know, uh, yeah, same thing. We all know each other. So, so. Yeah, exactly. We do. Well done, we do. Man. Virtual hugs, my friend. Yeah. And uh, I will see you uh, in America or in the Maritimes very soon, I hope. Yeah, certainly, man. Hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. And be sure to buy Jason's album, Live Before Lockdown, on iTunes now. Further details can be found in the brand new volume of Edit Magazine, available from all good book and magazine retailers across Canada, or from our website, maritimeedit.com. See you next time. Podstarter. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.